assistant vocation director of the Archdiocese of Boston. And I want to talk about vocations and stuff, but first, you have a license in scripture from the Gregorian, which is a Jesuit one university and is very esteemed. And uh, uh, so tell us about that experience. You're from, you're a native of Boston. What's the suburb again? <laughs> uh, I grew up in the town of Needham. Needham, yep. okay. Yeah. And then you're over there studying scripture with the best, right? So <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> uh, uh, thanks, Father Mark. It's uh -huh. great to be here with you today yeah. and on the show. And um, yeah, it was it was quite an adventure. You know, I guess <laughs> definitely related to the topic of vocation because I had no plan for this. I had no clue mm -hmm. I was going to end up in Rome and be studying scripture. But um, it's been an amazing adventure. You know, it's been right. really awesome uh, just to see the plans that God has and um, to, yeah, to have the opportunity to be in Rome for five years to right. study uh, theology and especially scripture there uh, was really, really incredible. So um, that's where you did your major theology for seminary. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I did my philosophy at St. John's mm -hmm. in Brighton, mm -hmm. um, a seminary in Boston. And then I did my theology over in Rome. I lived at the North American College and studied the Gregorian. Uh, mm -hmm. Had some really great professors over there. Um, and, and more so than just, I mean, the theology and, you know, the academic side of things is incredible. Uh, but just being able to, to live in Rome, to experience uh, the history, the tradition, the Holy Father. The, one of my favorite things was every Lent we would do uh, station churches meaning every day of Lent, we went to a different church where an early Roman martyr was either martyred or buried. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like a little pilgrimage throughout Lent, every day going to a new church, walking through the streets of Rome. I would, after attending Mass, I'd, you know, bike uh, to class and be biking by the Colosseum. And I would just think, you know, my life is ridiculous, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Here I am attending Mass during Lent at a site of one of the Roman martyrs and now yeah. biking past the Colosseum on the way yeah. to class. It's kind of, it's kind of absurd. <laughs> how long a bike ride from the neck was that? Where Depends you? how fast you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so from the neck, down the hill, across the river to the Gregorian, uh, I got to where I could do it in about 10 minutes. Um, Would you be in regular traffic? Uh, yeah, so um, I went to Boston University for college, mm. so I learned how to, and they didn't have bike paths at that point. Now in Boston, there's little, you know, kind of bike lanes and yeah. everything, but, you know, I graduated 10 years ago, and uh, there's very little of that. So I got yeah. pretty good at biking in a city. The only difference in Rome was the cobblestones and the little motorini scooters darting around everywhere. So yeah. Yeah. Um, a little treacherous, but I, I came out unscathed. You had like a mountain bike type of thing? A uh, little like hybrid, hybrid kind of, yeah. not quite a road yeah. bike, not quite a mountain yeah. bike, yeah. And never an accident. It looks so dangerous. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I wore my helmet, absolutely. Um, I did have a friend, a couple of friends, you know, get into little accidents. Luckily, nothing mm -hmm. super major, but yeah. one friend was going down a hill. Um, this was after, actually, uh, Ash Wednesday on Santa Sabina, um, mm -hmm the Abitine Hill. Um, so there's old Benedictine church, uh, really amazing. It's got like the oldest wooden depiction of the crucifixion of Christ, like fourth century, you know, right. really amazing. But he was biking down the hill, going to class, 
the car in front of him stopped abruptly. You know, he slams on the brakes and flips over the handles bar and like, wow. you know, splits his lip and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so what always impressed me is that you, they, they're teaching you in Italian. Yeah. Right? And they're probably looking down on Americans, right? <laughs> so that's slowing down, right? So, so how was that? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, there's so many stories. <laughs> um, it, was, it was good. I mean, uh, my motto was fake it till you make it, you know. <laughs> and I mean, just by being there and trying to learn, you know, you yeah. do start to assimilate and pick it up. Mm -hmm. The first year is exhausting. Yeah. you know, learning and attending class in a different language. But then the second year it becomes, you can almost do it without thinking as actively, you know, right. kind of just right. like how you listen normally. Uh -huh. So you do get better just with experience. Um, I would, it's a very different learning experience over there. The education system is different yeah. than in America in that everything was lectures um, and you're in a big hall, you know, 200 plus students. And there are no assignments the whole year. Mm. You know, there's no homework. Mm. Uh, there's no papers, none of that. Mm. And then at the very end of the semester, you have one oral examination in about 15 minutes. And that's your entire grade for the whole semester. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's its own thing. Uh -huh. um, I think the professors, on one part, they look down on us because a lot of Americans, we weren't great at Italian. Mm but we were good students you know we were hard workers and we were prepared for the final exams much more yeah. so than um i just, i think just from the strength of our ac academic right. upbringing yeah. Yeah. yeah and we should say maybe our listener that it's usually the better students are sent to rome right uh, to, to learn so we like to imagine that at least <laughs> um i think part of yeah not every seminarian is sent to rome i don't know the statistics now i think you know, when I was there, it was about 10% um, of diocesan and ordinations were coming from the North American College mm. throughout the United States. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, we had a, a class of about 50 men over there. The, the house was pretty big. You know, there's, um, I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but, you know, we had about 250 seminarians living in the house together. And so if you have 50 seminarians, you know, we have 500 priests ordained in, in the United States. It was something like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, not every, so not every seminarian studies in Rome. I think part of it is a capacity to learn foreign languages. And then also you don't have your bishop and your diocese in close connection with you. So mm. um, there is formation, there are faculty over in Rome, but you don't have somebody, you know, looking over your shoulder, helping you stay on the right track as much. You know? Yeah. And that formation is done at the North American College. Yeah, so in Rome, the system is you have these national seminaries, like the Mexican College, the French College, mm -hmm. the Venerable English College, North American College, and those are houses of formation where we received liturgical formation, like the, how to celebrate the sacraments, spiritual formation, like going to Mass and our spiritual directors, human formation on a variety of topics, and then our academic formation was at these various pontifical universities. Mm. So I was at the Gregorian University run by the Jesuits. There's also the Angelicum, which is run by the Dominicans. Opus Dei runs Santa Croce. And those were the three 
major institutions Americans studied at for their their STB, their bachelor's in sacred theology. And you got a license for sacred theology, and you're telling me your emphasis of study was on Ephesians 5, which is probably, though it shouldn't be, the most controversial <laughs> passage for Americans, you know, and yeah. our feminist movement and things. Uh, so give it, what do you, if you had to preach Ephesians 5 at a typical Sunday parish, what would you hit? What would your... Typical Sunday, <laughs> oh boy. So yeah, I wrote most specifically on those very controversial verses, mm -hmm. 22 to 24 of chapter mm -hmm. 5 of Ephesians. Um, and if I were to try to, for my, for my, dis, for my thesis, I, it was done in three parts. The first was, what was life like for women in Ephesus in the first century? Um, oh. Because we have an under, you know, we're reading this as, you know, modern Americans, but we don't really know, you know, for the most part, we're clueless as to what life was like in Ephesus in the first century for Christian women. Um, tell us that. Right? Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. <laughs> never... this could, we could talk all day about this. <laughs> I wrote 150 pages. All right. Um, maybe two things uh, that, you know, are really kind of interesting. So one is, are you, you've heard of uh, the pater familias, mm -hmm. which is like the head of the family. So in the ancient Roman family... Now this was true patriarchy, right? Yeah, this is true patriarchy. <laughs> so in the ancient Roman family, the father of the household technically had authority over life and death, mm -hmm. uh, over his children, over his wife, over his slaves, etc. Um, and that would apply to Ephesus as well. Yeah, so Ephesus okay. was actually the third largest city in the ancient Roman Empire. Wow. It was okay. huge, over 200,000 people. Um, so in a real strong Roman culture and connections there, if you look at the archeology span and all sorts of other data out there. Um, so definitely a Roman city. Yeah. Um, and so, so in the ancient Roman uh, society, yeah, the, the pater familias, head of the family. And when traditionally, when a woman was married, um, that authority would pass from her father to her husband you know, that he now has the authority. But what was becoming very common in the first century was were marriages called sine manus, which means without the hand. Mm. And what that meant was that even though she was marrying uh, her husband, um, she the authority over her was still was with her father. Mm. Um, and so that's very interesting because when St. Paul is saying, wives be subordinate to your husbands uh, it has to be understood in distinction from fathers you know mm. and so saint paul he's trying to get back to like what is the primary relationship of a family it's between husband and wife you know and he quotes you know genesis as well like a husband uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. He quotes that a couple of verses later in this passage in Ephesians. So he's reminding us just like how it's supposed to be. You know, what's the fundamental relationship between man and uh, in, a, in a family? It's between husband and wife. Um, and there's a lot more <laughs> to be gleaned from that. Mm -hmm. Just, But I, I think that's one little insight. And then on the other hand, um, for a man his closest uh, 
family, our closest emotional connection was often with his mother. Um, I don't know if in the Mediterranean world, uh, men tend to be mama's boys, you know, they mm -hmm. stay close to mom and that's who he loves the most. Um, they're, you know, they're doted on by their mothers and they stay close. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it was back then. But here we see St. Paul saying, uh, husband, love your wives. You know, so we see this reciprocal side of things. So again, he's, he's promoting the unity of the marriage bond and the importance and focus on that. Um, so there's, there's a lot more, I think, to be said about understanding what's going on historically and sociologically speaking back right, then. But that's just right. one little piece I find interesting. Yeah. And what does, you know, to call the husband the head of the woman, is that how you say it? Yeah, mm -hmm. what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> some people seem like they want to say it doesn't really mean anything. But then it, it must mean something because it's said there, you know, practically mm -hmm. speaking, it doesn't mean anything in modern marriage. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's a, a great question. And uh, this is maybe where things can be perceived as, a, you know, a little dicey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, and again, just to paint how broad of a question this can really be is one, you can look at it through studying medicine of the Greeks you know, Hippocrates, um, St. Paul actually in the letter to the Ephesians, he describes headship, I believe in chapter three or four. Um, and he uses almost the exact same language mm -hmm. as Hippocrates does, uh, you know, the Hippocratic mm -hmm. Oath guy. Right. Um, so you can investigate it from that point of yeah. view. Um, but theologically, um, you know, St. Paul often talks about this, actually, in Ephesians chapter one, he, he says that headship is a gift. You know, Christ is given as head of the church. He's given, you know, as head of the church. Um, and, you know, Jesus constantly talks about how leadership, headship is meant to be in service. Um, and so right. in this passage in Ephesians, we see how a husband is meant to give his life for his wife. Right. Um, right. And so this headship is fundamentally about service and, right. um, you know, leading in one sense, but like leading in love. Um, maybe mm -hmm. one thing that I think will be helpful for people in reading this passage is paying attention to who's being addressed. Um, in wives, you know, be subordinate to your husbands in those words, um, he's addressing the wives. He's not addressing the husbands. Mm. Um, and actually in the ancient worlds, um, this type of ethical treaties on husband and wife family dynamics uh, goes all the way back to Aristotle and the politics mm. um, in his work, uh, Politica. But um, St. Paul is the first and only to address women. Huh. All the other ethical treaties are just addressing the men. Mm. So he's affording them a great respect first in addressing them. Mm -hmm. And when he says um, be subordinate, um, in the Greek, it's using the middle voice, um, which we don't have in English. Mm. <laughs> it's the active voice would be like sub subordinate someone else. The passive would be be subordinated. But the middle voice is like subordinate yourself. Mm. Um, so rather than it's, it's not about letting the husband abuse you. It's mm. not about, but it's rather like 
you choosing this. Right. Like right. he's saying, this is something, this is an attitude, this is an approach I'm recommending to you. And in fact, it's in the Greek, it's not even a command form. It takes a, it's a participle imperative, mm. um, meaning it, it's a participle, but has an exhortation type quality to it. But it's not like do this or else, you know, it's not yeah. super strong. It's, it's, a, it's his recommendation. It's saying like, this is, this is what I'm suggesting you do, but yeah. um, it's not the husband's responsibility to do it. It's the wives, just mm -hmm. like it's not the wives responsibility to make husbands sacrifice themselves. Right. You know, he's saying each of you have your own role, you know, right. and you don't worry about if their spouse is doing your job or not, like focus um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from New England. We're Patriots fans up here. So it's do your job. You know, that's right, the Bill Belichick, right. the Foxborough right. way. It's like, do yeah, your job. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what St. Paul is saying here. It's mm -hmm. like, don't worry about your husband. Don't worry about your wife. You know, like, do your job, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And the, the verse 21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So yeah. It's a mutual subjection. That's the overall yeah. context. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, in verse 22, when it says, be subordinate, it, the verb doesn't even appear. It's an ellipsis. Hmm. Uh, it's implied from wow. verse uh, 21. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's real, like a subtle suggestion, If you know. Yeah. It's not so. So anyone who interprets this in terms of like abuse is wrong. But so I think a question for us to ponder is like, um, one is like St. Paul is not like trying to... Uh, crack down on women and their freedom yeah. um he's giving a recommendation but the question is like why i think a lot of times we find this passage so objectionable because um because we view the command as negative like this recommendation of saint paul we see it as a negative thing and that's mm -hmm. why we say it's wrong you know we say mm -hmm. like women shouldn't be treated like mm -hmm. that you know or, or shouldn't have to do this it's, it's right. bad it's wrong um but in St. Paul's mindset, um, this term to be subordinate appears in several really key places in St. Paul's theology, uh, probably the most important of which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, where St. Paul is describing the end of time. You know, he's describing the end of everything, the eschaton, eschatology. And uh, I believe it's, if you're looking at it, it's, mm -hmm. up, it's in verse uh, around 20, 24, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he's describing how the goal of God being all in all. Mm. And he says this, the way that it comes about is first, all things will be subordinate to Christ and mm. Christ will subordinate himself to his father so that God may be all in all. Mm. So the goal of this is like union of all things in God, this final union of everything. And the way it's achieved is through subordination. Mm. And so a wife's subordination to her, her husband's headship is a participation in the church's subordination to Christ. It's a participation in Christ's subordination to his father mm. with his goal of uniting us all in love. And again, going back to Ephesians 5, uh, where St. Paul is, a quote, is quoting Genesis, again, it's and the two become one flesh, mm. you know. So the whole context of the letter to the Ephesians is about unity and how how do we live this unity out? How do Gentile and Jew come together? And now he's talking about families in particular. Yeah, I'll just I'll read the first Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself 
will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. That it's through, I know I've always, it's always, you know, God, you know, he, he wants us to be obedient to authority, to respect authority, and he works through authority. Mm-hmm. And um, and that that's the way he's subjecting, bringing everything under him is through this authorities he set up. And, and to think that the son is subordinate to the father. Mm-hmm. And we know the Trinity, right? There's absolute equality. There are three divine persons, yet there's still this, so, if we see it in marriage, we shouldn't be shocked. Right. right. Yeah, we see it in the Trinity. <laughs> yeah, we see it, right, you know, the, right. from the son's obedience yeah. to the father. And um, yeah. no, it's, and it's a really, I think, you know, it, it calls us to look at relationships in a new way. Um, you know, with the fall, uh, you know, original sin, suddenly men and women look at each other with suspicion. You know, that's what led to the fall in the first place is we look at God with suspicion. We don't trust God. Right. Um, and after the fall, you know, men and women don't view each other with suspicion mm. um, and distrust. And But rather, you know, yeah, we are called to trust and love means vulnerability. Yeah, there's yeah. an openness. Someone I might be taken advantage of, but there really is no other way to love um, than like taking a risk and putting my life in somebody else's hands, you know. Right. And I, I've heard, a, I remember as a Protestant minister talked about, you know, the husband is exhorted in Ephesians 5.25, love your wife, mm-hmm. as Christ of the church, gave himself up for her, like to lay down his life for her. And he said that that Paul was maybe exhorting each of the the wife and the husband to things that they might not naturally come to them as readily. Women are quick to love, right? Mm-hmm. The primacy mm-hmm. in the order of love. I forgot John Paul said that, but um, and and men, you know, they operate. They like to set up the hierarchies, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like the respect, because I think sometimes it's like a wife might not realize how important respect is in the sense like if you're cutting him down as authority, as accomplishment, or those things might not be as big to her as they are to him. Like if he cuts down her looks or something like that, it's mm-hmm. very hurtful. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes I think women don't get that, that it's so, that, that kind of hierarchical way of seeing things more prevalent in men and stuff that Paul's almost having to exhort women to respect the, I mean, to exhort them to respect it. But for men to, hey, it's about love, you know, it's not just about leading or ruling or whatever. But um, I always kind of like that. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. um, you know, there's, yeah, there's definitely many reasons why St. Paul is exhorting husband and wives to these specific, mm-hmm. act, you know, um, yeah, ways of, of loving. Um, in, I think you, men often have a tendency um, for like paralysis, you know, inhibition, yeah, like right. being afraid of action. Um, you As know, vocation director. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Not the fence, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you know me too well. Um, <laughs> But um, oh, I, th- I think a lot of women probably see that too, wanting their you know their boyfriend to yeah. pull the trigger right. and you right. know propose or something right. like right. 
Um, and, you know, again, it, I would go back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, and it's um, Adam's sin is like just standing there and doing nothing, you know, yeah, while yeah. Eve is is taking the fruit, you know. Right, right. Um, Adam's right there, and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He's too yeah, passive, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and our protector, I, I think Scott Hahn points that out, like protecting her from the serpent yeah, yeah. Know, in some way. Whatever. He, yeah, he, he failed, yeah. you know, to step up. Yeah. to rise to the occasion. And, yeah. um, I think definitely, you know, we can look at um, just men in our culture and see a need for men to like to step up, you know, to be like a leader in a positive way, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, intervening as necessary um, because his his temptation is just to, is to give into fear, you know, and to not, not act. Right. Um, so I think, you know, you know, I, I work at a number with a number of like high school campuses too, and uh, definitely what I really admire in teachers is when they're able to, um, especially like all boys, you know, Catholic schools, and I really admire um, teachers that I, I see are able to like empower you know these young boys to like to be men, like to take on right. responsibility, saying like, okay, you're an upperclassman now, you've got to lead the, the underclassmen, you know, you've got to take some ownership and and lead and the, these young boys you know the young men they they respond well to that you know they to be challenged to be encouraged um to be told that you're a man you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think it's something um young men need to hear is that you're a man you have what it takes you know uh, we need you yeah. um i think obviously i think women call that out of men you mm-hmm. know and think of or just for the priest, you know, seeing, recognizing the church as feminine, as the bride of Christ, or Mary as a, the exemplar of the church, you know, yeah. and that it just, it calls a certain masculinity out of the man, out of the priest. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, part of the feminine genius is that ability to, to draw, um, yeah, draw a man out of himself yeah, and yeah. also to, this capacity to receive um, and to welcome, you know, right, right. Um, to receive somebody where they're at. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's a beautiful gift and definitely, you know, a model for the church and receiving God's love or receiving people um, yeah. into this community. Um, you know, just tying back to Ephesians, one is uh, recognizing uh, with this call to, you know, obedience or sub- subordination, like all of us are called to that. You know, we're right. all members of the church, right. you know, we're all... Right. Uh, we're all called to be obedient, you know, in yeah. our relationship to God or to a people of authority, you know, everyone. But, but yeah, women, I think, have a lot to teach us in how to receive another uh, in love. Um, and because fundamentally in our relationship with God, we, we receive his love first and foremost. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, sometimes too, well, I, I always like to emphasize too on this passage when I preach on it, is that the mutual subjection part of both are laying their gifts at the feet of the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I think men and women in, in marriage, who doesn't want to be given the gifts of the other? I mean, they can recognize, hey, they they excel or better at some things than I'm not, you know, due to their gender and stuff that, you know, it's like, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of like invigorating. You know, it's like, wow, this is a gift I didn't expect that lifts up the marriage, that lifts up the family, that serves these things mm-hmm. in a deeper 
communion and and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, but I, I, I <laughs> go feel, for it. <laughs> well, I feel I feel like you know we can't we can't speak of like male leadership today, you know, and and I, I think we have to to some degree to talk about this call and maybe gifting that not all men are called to be this spectacular leader or something, but there's something in the masculine genius that suits them to lead and stuff. Because I, sometimes I want to say like like women. You can't have all the gifts, right? <laughs> I mean, you clearly have this great gift of of nurturing, of relationship, of connectivity, of, you know, yeah. connect, you know, and it's like, and the, the individual, like yeah. they see the individual. I see that so many times. Like I'll see, you know, I might look at the problem and yeah. all this kind of stuff and they go to the individual mm-hmm. and they see particular needs there and stuff that yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. yeah one of the, you know, something I've been contemplating over the past year or so um, in terms of like, yeah, masculine genus, you know, masculine mm-hmm. qualities um, is like the power of a man's words, you mm-hmm. know, the power of a father's words. Yeah. Um, you know, the image, the first image we have of God, the father in the Old Testament is God creating through the power of his word. Right. You know, let there be light. And there was light. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the first you know task that god gives to adam um mm-hmm. you know but to name the animals mm-hmm. like his words have power um and he, i think all you know and then throughout the old testament like a father's blessing you know for his his sons or for others like are, is very powerful um and how much you know do we crave that like for a young man to receive his father's blessing um and like that his words have power you know, yeah. both to hurt. Right. Um, I think a lot of men don't realize how powerful their words are and they use it to hurt women mm-hmm. um, or, or each other. Yeah. Um, but like the power of a man's words to to build each other up, right. um, yeah. to bless and like bestow and like almost like create um, like an identity, you know, for mm-hmm. people. It's like, you know, I, I, I just think of friends that I've had who when they affirm somebody, you know, and it's sincere and it's genuine, um, like the power that has in somebody's life. Yeah. And I think, you know, a man is called to that both mm-hmm. to his children, but also to his wife, mm-hmm. you know, telling her that, you know, she's beautiful and that he loves her and cherishes her. Like Adam did to Eve. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think so part of the call for a woman, um, is to allow herself to receive that love, you know, to hear yeah. his words spoken to her. And I think it's it's very hard, not just for women and for anyone uh, in general, but to be, to be able to receive love, you know, to accept the love that's given to us without saying, oh, I'm not worth it, I'm not good enough, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of block, you know, people from loving us sometimes. Right. And so right. I think a, a man's challenge, again, is to overcome his inhibition yeah. But to do and to say the things that need to be done and said, right, right. and oftentimes a challenge for a woman is, uh, is despite her insecurities and uh, feelings of unworthiness, but to accept and receive the love that's given her. Yeah, yeah. That experiencing of that love, yeah. It's something John Paul wrote about these themes a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in my own life too. Yeah, things. My father, grandfather said, just were so weighty and so, and I don't know if it's just because I'm a man, but it's, 
you know, I just, I needed to hear certain things. Mm. And it might have not have been said often, but when it was said, it was like, it really, yeah. it really pierces you. Mm-hmm. But, um, well, man, I guess you got to meet your friends. You got to go out to dinner with another priest. Uh, a couple minutes yet, so minutes. however, All right, well, let's however talk, long you think we got. Let's talk a little about vocations then. Um, you're in a major metropolis here in America. What do you see as the challenge? Are less people, less young men considering the call? If so, why? And what call do they need to hear? What does draw them? And you've been in a, a diocese that's was kind of the epicenter of the, certainly not the most by numbers, I wouldn't think or anything, but just whatever reason. But maybe that kind of impact as well, you know, on the young men. Um, can you talk about that, your work? There? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess one, so just for everyone to know, I, yeah, I work as assistant vocations director in the Archdiocese of Boston. Um, it is a big diocese. I think we're the fourth largest, you know, in terms oh, wow. of population uh, in the country. And your German background, the Zimmerman? Yeah, yeah. My dad's from yeah. Pennsylvania. Okay. So my mom's from Worcester, uh, but they met in Boston. I always think of like the Irish of Boston. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, traditionally, you know. Yeah. Um, though, you know, in the early church, it was originally French were the first ones. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Father, Father Matignon was the first uh, priest and, you know, Bishop Cheveris. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, so it was... French was first, and the Irish uh, definitely became predominant, mm-hmm. you know, especially with the potato famine and mm-hmm. everything there. But, um, uh, yeah, we got a mix of cultures. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, you know, that we experienced the clergy a sexual abuse crisis kind of breaking first in Boston. Um, and with that, you know, our number of seminarians really took a dive before, you know, we had about 50 um, seminarians, 40 to 50. And then after that year or two later, a couple years later, we were down to like in the teens, you know, so, uh, but then by the time I entered seminary, um, 10 years ago now, um, we had 60 to 70 seminarians again. So wow. it rebounded pretty quick in terms of vocations. Um, now we have 50 to 60 seminarians on average given year, uh, ordaining you know, I'd say six to eight a year, sometimes more, um, which is great. You know, we'd love more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> back in the yeah. day, in the 50s and 60s, we had 2,000 priests in the Archdiocese of Boston. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. Now we still have uh, 500 priests, not all active. Um, so it's still a big diocese, uh, still looking for more vocations, of course. Um, one uh, priest friend of mine, originally not from the area, but chose to become a priest for Boston. In fact, because of the clergy uh, abuse crisis, um, you know, he said the, uh, his reflection was the site of the crucifixion is the site of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so he chose to go to Boston specifically for that Mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, we pray for great renewal in the, in the church, you know, demographically in Boston, there is, uh, as the, baby boomer generation is you know on the decline we're mm-hmm. uh, we're definitely losing numbers on the whole um, but i'm very encouraged i'm very connected with you know the colleges and young adult young professional communities and you have to know where to look but they're really great really yeah. amazing and growing so like the general population of boston's declining or? oh um good question are the catholic population? but the catholic okay. population oh, okay. definitely okay. Yeah. you know uh-huh. um the catholic population mm-hmm. 
is is declining. Yeah. Uh, and you know, God willing, that will turn around. But we're it's it, part of it's the demographics. You know that. But you are in. you're known for so many universities. There, it's like per capita is probably the <laughs> highest of the country. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I've heard I forget where I read this, but so Boston. Uh, with the university students has a population of about a million for Boston proper. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of towns right around Boston that would boost that number quite a bit. But um, Boston proper, about a million people, and mm -hmm. a third of those are university students. Wow. wow. <laughs> so we have, you know, universities on top of each other. Harvard, mm -hmm. MIT, Boston University, Boston College, Tufts, Northeastern, you know, Mass College of Pharmacy, Wentworth, Emmanuel, uh, Bentley, you know, like wow. Uh, wow. You, you can go, uh, yeah, Suffolk, UMass, Boston, you know, you can yeah. Yeah. go for days just listing all the colleges <laughs> that are like right downtown. So yeah. we do have a young, um, I would say, yeah, our campus ministry outreach uh, has, you know, is a really important um, Do you have us. a lot of focus missionaries up there? Um, well, I would love to have more. Uh, they're great, <laughs> you know. Um, the, the, we have them at Boston University, Harvard, MIT, and Bridgewater State. So at four mm -hmm. different campuses. Um, but yeah, I think it'd be great to have them yeah. on all our campuses. Yeah, they're really great. All right, and we have a uh, St. Paul's Outreach. Another. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. They're at Northeastern. Okay. Yeah. And then, what do you find like the young men today, like in college? I mean, some like average age of seminarians when I was in there it was like. <laughs> almost 30. I don't know what it is today. But. Yeah, we still, I would say, we don't have many um, vocations coming right out of high school. Mm -hmm. I think part of the thing in the Northeast and Boston in particular is men aren't really, uh, like, you don't really think about what you're supposed to do with your life until you get to college. Right, <laughs> you right. know, it's kind of just a presumption that everyone goes to college. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and then you start to, after you start spending thousands of dollars in debt, <laughs> you know, then you start to think, oh, wait, wait, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> so most of our men, yeah, come after they graduate from college or after working a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but and I think that's really good to get some job experience because I think you develop a lot of virtues that blesses you your whole life. Yeah, so, I think yeah. so. I, I, maybe in other parts of the country, people grow up faster. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, no, there's... I think you, God calls in a variety of ways. You know, for some men, it's the best time is right after high school. Um, for me, it was really good that I went to college. For others, it's good that they they work for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, in Boston, we have uh, Pope St. John the 23rd Seminary for uh, delayed vocations. So in Boston, we have seminarians who are in their 50s, you know, and um, I think Maybe I don't want to give away all their ages, you know, but right, <laughs> maybe right. one who's 60. And, yeah. Um, but so definitely for any men out there who feel like they're that past their age, no, yeah. I mean, definitely consider a delayed, you know, having a delayed vocation yeah. of the priesthood and God preparing you for that through your work experience. And what, what is kind of like the core message you try to give a young man that's wondering? What, what kind of, you tell him about his prayer life or why be priest or discerning the call? Yeah, so a lot of my work, I, I try not to be in, uh, too heavy-handed about it, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of saying, you, 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 yeah. you all become priests, right, you know. Right. I think, um, in part, I want to get to know them better right. and to see, like, um, is God actually calling them? And mm -hmm. for also for them to know and trust me as, like, somebody who cares about yeah. them and wants what's best for them. And I think that parallels 
part of my message for them is that like God has a plan for you. Right. You know, he knows you, he loves you, and he knows what's going to make you happy and be best mm-hmm. for you and for his kingdom. And it's worth asking that question. Right. Like you, we don't know the future. We don't even know ourselves, our own heart. Uh, but in asking God, turning to him, like he can help us discover who we are and who we're made to be. Um, and so I hope, you know, in my work with men, whether they're called to the priesthood or not, hopefully I can help them to become a great saint, you know, yeah. to do God's will is what right. I really care about. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Father uh, Zerman, for talking with us. Um, it's been great, and God bless you and your important work. Thank you, Father Mark. It's been a pl- pleasure. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you and for your listeners, too. Mm-hmm.